0: week. If you're uh, visiting with us for the first time or watching online, um, this is the last week that we're going to be studying the book of Mark because it's the last chapter of Mark. And it's kind of the last official, like we usually just, we've been preaching through these books of the Bible. And then we're going to have a couple weeks where we're just kind of preaching about Christmas. So this is in a way, it's kind of the last of the thing for the year. Um, And it kind of sums up all of what we've been doing, going through Exodus and Ephesians and Elijah and Elisha and all of this kind of almost comes to a head in this chapter here, and it's really short, <laughs> so it's kind of a funny uh, ending. And uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of you'll see what I mean. It almost feels like, and wait, that's it? It's over? You know that kind of thing. And so I'm going to be brief today about some thoughts because I think that we've done all the we've looked at so much this whole year. And there isn't too much left that left that needs to be said in a way, you know. But we'll get into it. So let me read these first eight verses, um, and just to just to catch you up in case you haven't been, you know, the Gospel of Mark is a story. Most is probably is Peter's uh, a testament of you know time with Jesus, recorded by a guy named Mark, John Mark, or, you know, or whatever. People they don't know exactly who, but that's why it's called Mark. And then. Um, chronicling all the things Jesus did. And it's shorter than the other Gospels. It doesn't have all the same details as the other Gospels. The other ones have kind of more in a lot of places. And this one is really fast-paced, boom, 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 boom. And some of these chapters would have, like, five little stories in them, which each one of those could have been a week we did, but we just did them all at once. And the pace is a little crazy. And then all of a sudden it comes to this racing end right here, boom, you know. And then um, last week we looked at it was the crucifixion time where Jesus is tried unjustly, and finally sent to his death on a cross, and that accomplishes the end of his mission by doing that. And it's a strange end because it seems to everybody involved, his disciples and such, people who have been following him. Like, I thought this guy was the son of God, and he seemed like the son of God to me. And then now he's dead. And this this kind of a weird moment. It just kind of leaves you hanging. Like, well, if he was I thought he was different, you know? I thought it was different. But then some odd things happened where, like, Jesus dies. It's this, this dark at the middle of the day, which is very strange. Not like eclipse dark. Like, you know, it says how many hours it was. That's not a solar eclipse because solar eclipses don't last that long. And you can look that up. But, you know, it's like they only last a little bit. Y'all remember there was one a couple of years ago that kind of almost passed by here. It's like it wasn't an eclipse. God did something. And then Jesus dies on the cross. And the temple, the place where God's presence is supposed to be, the same kind of place where Jesus was pronouncing judgment on about it, you know, the, the curtain that we read about in Exodus, originally in the tabernacle, eventually in the temple. Where it was supposed to separate the people from the God's actually holy presence because if you get in God's presence, you get, like, messed up, you know. And I, I, I can reference Indiana Jones since I'm wearing my shirt. But Benjamin's not here. I wore the shirt for Benjamin Larson, but he's not here. But, the, um, uh, yeah, you get in God's presence, bad things happen to you if you get you're unholy, you're, you know. And so, but they'd got to set up this way to work and let his presence be among his people and all this kind of stuff. And it had gotten corrupt. It had gotten dark. blah. And the, his presence wasn't even there and when Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain is ripped, top to bottom. And Jesus has now made a way into the holy presence that, you know, Paul talks about. And but we can all look back on that and see it all. But at the time, it would have been very confusing. There's earthquakes and other gospels. It's like, what is going on? And the Roman centurion, not a Jewish, he's standing there and he goes, this guy is different. You know, he's one of the first kind of all back-end converts he was one of the guys actually killing Jesus, and then he's standing there watching how Jesus died, it said in Mark 15. Seeing how he died, he declared, surely this is the Son of God. So it's like everybody they thought it was him, they thought it was him, and then Whoa, it's not, but then all of a sudden there's a little turn at the end where are like, this guy is, this is a guy, you know, and so we start to see something happening here at the beginning of chapter 16, which is unusual. <laughs> so Jesus has now died, and then they buried him, like you do when people die. So he wasn't, like, asleep. You need to say these things. It wasn't like, well, you know, maybe he was just asleep for a few days. Like, they would have known. People weren't stupid back then. You know what I mean? Like, when people are dead, you can tell, you know. And trust me, Roman soldier guys that kill people for a living, they're pretty good at knowing when people are dead. I mean, it's a weird expertise, but it's, you know, just saying, you know, we don't spend that much time around, whatever, we'll move on. (laughs) I can feel my wife being like, okay, (laughs) you made your point. I kind of blame that on her. I, you, I, didn't, really, yeah, I didn't really feel it. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked at you, so all right, let me, let me read this. Let's read the actual Bible. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought, bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body, which was something you did. Um, very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? So what these were like, a lot of times they would put the bodies into these kind of cave-like places and put a stone in front of it. And they would let the body decompose. And then they would take all the bones and put them in like an ossuary, a little box. And that thing would kind of stick around for like, they find these now, you know, still. But the body... the, the flesh and stuff rots away and there's a process they would have to do that in this tomb but they put a big rock in front of it because they're like you know we don't people messing with this and some of the other gospels talked about that so they're like well we're going to go do this thing we're supposed to do but how are we going to move this rock right simple obvious question when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away they entered the tomb and saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side and they were alarmed as you would be the the young man dressed in a white robe is an angel, and other you know. It's, so this is an angelic person. So the the rock that you were thinking you're gonna have to deal with is open. So in other places, like gosh, maybe somebody's come in and stolen his body. They run in there, and now there's an angel guy sitting there. And as you would be, they were alarmed. And if you're like, I would have been cool, then you're probably a liar. So <laughs> the uh, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. Do dead people do that? No, dead people do not do that. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? He's like, you know. But go tell his disciples and Peter, which that's kind of an interesting thing, because like, think of this was Peter's story. You know, at this point, he's denied Jesus three times. He doesn't even feel like he should be called a disciple. So he's like, go tell the good disciples and Peter, you know. If somebody else had written that, they would have probably been upset, but Peter could say that about himself. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee, which you see in some of the other Gospels. There you will see him just as he told you, which Jesus did tell them, you know. And then verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Is that what the guy said to do? No, that's not what the guy said to do. So here we have this. This is an interesting... So now, finally, the women who we talked about last week, the women were the only ones who finally hung around and were watching from a distance, even Jesus being crucified. And now even them, they're afraid and they don't tell anyone. That's where we're at in the story right now. But something weird has happened, something unusual, something that doesn't happen often, you know. Not like, oh, I remember when I heard about this happening before. This isn't the kinds of things that happen, you know. And he has risen. And so... This is, this is a point in your Bible where, depending on what version you're reading and depending on what you're looking at, some weird things happen. You might see something that says this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20, which is strange. Or you might also see this. Some manuscripts have the following ending between verses 8 and 9, which is like 8 and a half, I guess. And one manuscript has it after verse eight, omitting verses nine through twenty, and it, it says this: "This is the eight and a half verse, so you know Mark sixteen eight and a half." Then they quickly reported all these instructions to those around Peter. After this, Jesus himself also sent out through them sent sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. That's the end. And then we have verses nine through sixteen. So, you're like. What, what is happening there exactly? Well, we're gonna, I want to talk about that just for a second because. Uh, actually, we we'll am going to talk about it right now. I'm just going to skip some of this stuff. I'm going to invite Brandon up here. Uh, this, is, this is an interesting thing about the Bible. This kind of stuff can trip people up where they go, Wait, what just happened? I don't understand. Well, I thought the Bible, like, God wrote this book, and so it should be like, What are you saying there's extra verses in it? Or some Bibles don't even have this verse, or some don't even have that note in there, you know? Uh, Brandon and I were talking, come on up. Kevin is like our local, our resident Bible expert, and uh, good, good to ask Kevin Bible questions, but there's other people that know a lot about the Bible as well, and Brandon and I, we were just sitting here during the marriage conference and talking about Bibles, and he just passively made reference to the end of this chapter, which isn't stuff people normally bring up in conversation, you know, like the long ending of Mark 16. Do you say this often? You don't. And so I called Brandon this week and, and said, uh, hey, Let's talk about that, and then we, I said, hey, would you be willing to share some of that on Sunday because I think it might really bless people because you don't need to get hung up on this, and Brandon knows a lot about this, and I wanted him to come share and share some thoughts on this, and then we'll kind of close out this whole thing. Um, and there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, oh, sorry. I didn't put my slide in. Normally, we have a slide that says Bible nerd moment, but I don't have it, so I'll just I'll declare this a Bible nerd moment, so there you go. Bible nerd, Bible geek, whatever you want to.
1: Nerd, nerd. nerd? okay. All right, Bible nerd. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, so we'll start with reading the longer ending of Mark. <clears throat> so when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. So she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive, And that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized... Will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them, and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So, as Brian mentioned, I'm, uh, you know, one of the resident nerds, um, and so I'll start with the lead before I, get, I nerd out on you a little bit, um, and that is that the New Testament is reliable. It's supported by over 5,000 manuscripts, and any differences between different versions, different Greek texts are either insignificant or they make absolutely no difference at all to Christian theology or doctrine. So that's the lead. If you don't get anything else or you don't really get into the details that I get into, just understand that, that the Bible is reliable and it doesn't make a difference. So most people, well, we are so blessed. We have this and we probably have at least 10 different versions in the room. And that's just in English alone. It didn't exist in this book form when it was first uh, produced. Rather, it was a comp- compilation of various manuscripts that they had discovered, they preserved, they copied through scribes. Many of these manuscripts that we have, these 5,000, they're fragments. They're just verses. But, um, so the Old Testament is generally based on something called the Masoretic Text. That is a group of medieval texts, uh, manuscripts, that are put together by the Masoretes, which was a Jewish sect in the medieval times. The old te- for the New Testament, we have these 5,000 existing manuscripts, some complete, some, some not, and most of those are from the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. There's a few, a handful of them, from the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, and then there's a, an, the first full complete or nearly complete manuscripts of the Bible come from the 4th century. So we basically, you know, the, obviously the disciples wrote in the, the apostles wrote in the 1st century. And so we have three centuries later, are you know, the earliest manuscripts we actually have. So there's a branch of biblical scholarship called textual criticism. This is essentially the specialization that compares these manuscripts in order to determine what the original text of the Bible is. It's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, and others actually wrote. There are two general philosophies to this. The first one is the most predominant. That's what Brian talked about with 16, ending it at verse 8, is this... um, It's the, the basic philosophy is earlier manuscripts should better reflect the original documents because less time has passed and therefore less chance of errors being introduced into the text by copying. Because we didn't have printing presses back then. You actually had one person that literally would sit there and they'd compare the document and they'd copy it down, each line by line, word by word. And, of course, they're going back and forth and back and forth and errors can happen. So this philosophy is what's led to what's called the critical text. It was kind of, that was the first compilation, you know, in the modern times, and it's, um, that is the basis of most of our English translations, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the New Living Translation, all of those are based on this critical text and that philosophy. The other philosophy is that the original text is best represented by the majority of manuscripts in existence. The, um, it's also the basis, and this is called the majority text um, philosophy. It's also the basis for what is called the textus receptus or the received text, which is the subset of this majority text, and that's what Erasmus and other 1500s, um scholars used to create what we know as the King James Bible. There are no major English translations today that actually use the majority text. But the New King James, which is an update of the King James, uses the same textus Receptus in its New Testament base, but it also adds majority text footnotes as well as critical text footnotes. So within, like, the New King James, for instance, you can see the references of all the texts just by looking at the footnotes. So to give you an example of how these two philosophies might play out in textual criticism, let's consider the passage in Mark that we just read. So scholars adhering to the critical text philosophy believe that this passage was not in the original gospel because the two earliest, near-full, complete manuscripts of the Bible, and they're called Codus Sinaiticus and Codus Vaticanus, um, Codex Vaticanus, they were both dated in the 4th century and found in Alexandria, Egypt, and they don't include this passage. It ends, their, pas- their versions end at 16.8. So, scholars following the majority text would counter that the longer ending of Mark is found in every other, just about every other single existing manuscript, and the church fathers talked about 16 through 9 through. Of course, they didn't have verses and chapters back then, but they talked about it. So, that's heaven. So, there's good arguments for both sides, but the bigger question is do these differences matter in our trust and reliability of the Bible? And the answer is no. So, ninety percent of the Old Testament <clears throat> has no significant variant between the manuscripts. Eighty-five percent of the New Testament has no significant variant at all. Almost of any of these variants, and that term variant just means if you look at the text, there's a different text depending on the actual uh, in the Greek, depending on whether you looked at one script manuscript or not. So, the um, in nine in so all, almost all of these variants, this, you know, 15% in, in the New Testament 10% in the Old Testament are basically differences in spelling, word order, um, synonyms, except, et cetera. So, for instance, if somebody spoke like, you know, wrote it down like Yoda and reversed the s- subject-verb agreement, then that, that would be the kind of a difference that makes no difference. It doesn't matter whether you, how you put, put, put order, word order, you put it in there. So the... In the New Testament, when we talked about the critical and majority, 98% of the critical text and the majority text are the same. So we don't really have a lot of difference that we're dealing with here. And those little insignificant spelling and word order differences account for another one and a half percent of the text. So that leaves us only one half of one percent of the Bible that we use today that has the insignificant changes. And that's basically three passages in the New Testament. First John, five through seven and eight five, seven and eight. Uh, John 53, 753 through 811, and this passage that we're talking about today. So first John, five through seven and eight <coughs> actually reads in the NIV this way. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If you read it in the New King James, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. As you can see, the New King James has Father, Word, Holy Spirit. They have an explicit reference to the Trinity, whereas the critical text does not. So does it make a difference? No, because there are Trinitarian references all over the Bible. And they're not explicit like that, but they are pretty clear. So let's like 2 Corinthians I ran out of ribbons. So to find it. So the end of 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's how he ends 2 Corinthians. You can see that that's a reference to the Trinity. So it's in here in some other place and that's in the this is the critical text version, the NIV. So it doesn't matter that first about 1 John. So John seven fifty three through eight eleven is the text about Jesus and the woman and adultery, where the the, uh, the Pharisees try to trap him into um, something, and he basically has. Now, getting into the argument of whether that one's in there or not is again an argument between majority text and critical text. But every single scholar, whatever they feel about this, whichever side of the camp that they're on, agrees that this story actually happened. It just may not have been in the actual book of John when John first wrote it. So they also agree that the theology in that story is consistent with Jesus' theology and is consistent with other biblical teachings. So again, whether or not it's in there or not, we can still use it because it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. Last, for Mark 16... All of, almost all of that that I read Has parallels in other Gospels Just pull out one of your cross your study Bibles And you look at the cross references In there And you will see that almost everything In that verse is the same The only unusual verse Is verse 18 Where it talks about taking up serpents And drinking deadly poison The key to that verse is to Understand that It's you don't read, you don't make your theology based on one single verse. If you look at the context of the rest of the Bible, you let the Bible interpret the Bible. So if you look at that in the context of Matthew 4, when the Satan in, tempted Jesus, and Acts 28, when Paul survived a viper bite on Malta. The, Matthew 4, the devil asked Jesus to jump off a cliff because Psalm 91 says that he'll give his angels charge over you and protect you and keep you from dashing your feet on stone. Jesus says, don't test God. In Acts 28, Paul had been shipwrecked in the island of Malta on his way to testify in Rome. Paul suffered no harm when he was bit by this viper, and he eventually arrived in Rome where he evangelized, ministered, and wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So from the context of these two passages, we know that Mark 16, 18, tells us that in the event of some risk or harm, while we're doing what God calls us to do, we can believe that God will protect us, and so his will is accomplished. So again, that verse may, these verses may not be in here, they may be, but either way, it doesn't make a difference. So the Bible's reliable, it has enormous textual support any differences are minor or irrelevant and don't affect any major theology or doctrine. So you may ask, okay, so what? If all these textual variants don't amount to much, why do we study them all? Why do we have an entire branch of scholarship that spends all this time going over it? Well, there are at least three reasons. First, God's Word's important. By studying this manuscript evidence... We have become ever more certain that the Bibles that we have today are accurate and are true. And if we are accurate, then we can rely on it for matters of faith and practice. So we all pray. We try to hear from God. Well, if you feel like God's telling you something, how do we know that it's God? You can say, you, you know, we have the sense of his presence and stuff like this, but how do we know? we can compare it to the word of God. And by knowing that it's accurate, then we can know that what we hear from God is the truth or something just that we've made up in our minds. Number two, God is in control. The care with which his word has been accurately preserved over the centuries. Remember, 99.5% is the same. Regardless. So, by knowing that it's accurate, we can, uh, by, by preserving, preser- um, it demonstrates his sovereignty that he is in control of this and he had providence over this preservation of all these texts that disappeared and got copied and everything over centuries. So, it shows his sovereignty, it shows how much he cares that we know him accurately and know his will for our lives. And then the third thing is it actually helps in evangelism. It brings people to Christ. We live in a world where people can't even agree on the facts, much less the meaning of facts. So being able to demonstrate the reliability of God's word is a powerful testimony for the truth of the gospel. <laughs> God loves us. He sent his son to die for us so that we might have right fellowship with him. That's the basic message of the gospel. We know this is true because the Bible tells us so, and because we know it's reliable. So next time you sing, Jesus loves me, think about that, because the Bible tells me so. You will realize that that's the Bible tells us so, and it's textual critics that have made sure that it's accurate.
0: See, so we have some gifted people in our midst, guys. And that's probably for some of you the beginning of a of a investigation conversation you may want to have. And Brandon, I'm sure, we will be glad to have it with you. Kevin would have it with I'll have it with you if you want, but I would go to them first because you can see he knows a lot about it, you know. Kayla, you come on up here. I think we're gonna wrap this up. The thing about this, and in the same sort of way, I was thinking while he was saying that there's time like, I'll go to Starbucks and they will be like, what's your name? And I'll say, Brian. And then when I get the cup later, sometimes it's spelled with an I and sometimes it's spelled with a Y. But when it's spelled with a Y, I don't go, oh, that's not mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's probably some other guy. You know, it's obviously, you know, it's like they just spelled it. It's, it's that kind of stuff. But that kind of stuff can mess with people's heads. And it's, it's good to know how much work has gone into us having this you know these bibles weren't written in english english was not a language at the time there was like proto-english things maybe but not not really you know so the luxury that we have to just be able to read this book in our language has been a whole lot of work by a whole lot of people and people have died for this like the first translation to english is that william tyndall or whatever they killed him for doing it you know and so it's, it's, it is a big deal. I know it was kind of a long Bible nerd moment, but I think it's really important for you to understand this, the significance of this. And uh, in a way about how this doesn't matter, if, the, if it does end at verse 8, and they went out and told no one, or it does end with this longer story of, and then these are the kinds of things that will follow those who believe. Everybody that was reading this book at the time, you remember when this was written down? We talked all the way at the beginning about this. It was Christian people who were starting to experience the rumblings of persecution. Not full persecution, but just like, this isn't fun anymore. You know, Everybody's not happy that we're Christian people right now. What do we do about that? And people think that that short ending is there as almost a riddle. I like to say, like, what, kind of, what kind of disciple are you going to be? Are you going to be scared? Are you going to be not telling anybody because the obvious answer is it was obviously told like that wasn't the end because we're talking about it and reading it you know like they did tell and the signs did follow them and they do follow us now and all that kind of thing but what kind of disciple are we going to be even all these years later and so i found ourselves like at this end of this whole year and i found i felt like the Beatles at the end of abbey road when they're like And in the end... You know, and this is my kind of thought on the whole year that we've been at, and uh, you can leave that up as long as you want. (laughs) Because you say, like, what what kind of disciple are you going to be? But then if you take a second and just look back at this story, you might have been fine. We might have all been fine. We might have had questions. You know, we should be honest about this kind of stuff. You might say, how do we know that that guy got healed or how do we know that this thing actually happened or how do we know that you know but you can sometimes get around some of this stuff or like you know god did things and even like remember we went through elijah and elisha like earlier in the bible and there was a part where there was literally a guy made a soup out of gourds i don't know if you remember this and they started eating it and they were like this is po- like i don't know where he got these gourds they're poison they're like people if we're gonna eat this we're gonna die and then you pray they pray and put some flour on it i think and then it cleanses the poison out of the you know this is godlike stuff and maybe you're like okay fine but like now nah, you're telling me like i like jesus i like the things jesus says i like the stuff jesus did i like how he treated people i like how jesus loved people that other people had a hard time loving i like all that kind of stuff and i see that you know like the term like when beautiful people in the world do beautiful things that we kill them you know I I, I can even see that. I can see how the religious people would be threatened by a guy like that. I can see how this is, you know, and then they killed him. What you're trying to tell me, he, he, he rose from the grave? Like, isn't that crazy? Isn't that nuts? Yes. Yes. It is. It is not a, this is not normal. That is what we're saying, and it's a crazy thing. And Paul admitted it. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he said, if, the only, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But for Christ is indeed for but for but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Or 1 Corinthians 1 20 through 25. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of the world. What do you think about like the last two chapters we read? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of the world, and I'm out of time reading today. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, like they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Remember last week, literally last week, they're standing there, if you're really who you say you are, come down, do what, prove it, you know? And Greeks, look for wisdom. But isn't this ridiculous, what we're talking about? We're like this, you know, come on, man. But we preach Christ crucified, meaning the Savior of the world got killed. By the world. That's what we preach. And that is a stumbling block to Jews who want to sign and foolishness to the Gentiles. It is foolishness. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and, and Greeks, everyone, that's what he's saying, but to those whom God has called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He's saying it isn't the kind of sign people are expecting, and it isn't the kind of thing that just makes sense if you think about it enough. It's a paradigm shifting, world changing event that God has been setting up from the beginning and in the end this is a quote um from leslie newbegin that i think sums this up i like this i'll read it as he wrote it but he's an older british guy who is smart so it's hard to understand and then have it kind of broken down in actual points right if we take the bible in its canonical wholeness as we must meaning you can't just pick out the parts you like and leave out the parts you don't it doesn't work that way You know, it's like, no, it's kind of a thing. And you take the thing or you don't take the thing. And it's been preserved very well by people for a lot of work for a long time. So you take it or you leave it. Not because I say so. You take it or you leave it. If We take the whole Bible as its canonical wholeness. Or if we take the Bible in its canonical wholeness as we must, then it is best understood as History. It is universal, cosmic history. It interprets the entire story of all things from creation to consummation and the story of the human race within creation. What are we here to do? Why do we exist? And within the human race, the story of the people called by God to be the bearers of the meaning of the whole. The Jewish people coming out of Egypt, we saw this. The blood over the door, the Passover. And at the very center of the story, the one In whom God's purpose was decisively revealed by being decisively affected on the cross as he died. It is obviously a different story from the stories the world tells about itself. And that kind of means this. The Bible is a universal history that narrates the true story of the whole world. That's what the Bible is. That's what this story is. This is the thing we've been looking at. A central thread in the biblical narrative is that God has chosen a people to be bearers of the end and meaning of this story. It started with the Jewish people and it came all the way through to Jesus, the one dying on the cross. And then now has opened up to anyone, as Paul was just reading, that calls on the name of Jesus to whom he's revealed himself to, including us. And at the center of the story, Jesus reveals and accomplishes the end, therefore the purpose of history. That's what this moment that we're talking about is. And this story is different than the story the world tells about itself. We should know that, and we're okay with it. Not that we're special, okay? We're the same as everybody, but we've heard the story. We're not any better. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it we just know the story we've heard it now but we shouldn't expect them to just know it because the story the world tells about itself is different and it's bad it's not good and the last quote i wanted to read from him again leslie Newbegin, it says a good thing he's like it is there on calvary which is where jesus that the kingdom the king the kingly rule of god won its decisive victory over all the powers that contradict it The cross is not a defeat reversed by the resurrection. It is a victory proclaimed by the resurrection. The victory of God is revealed, but it is revealed as defeat. That's a different story than you expect. It's a different kind of king and a messiah than people are thinking. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And the people that hear this story and the people that have heard this story for 2,000 years have succeeded. We've failed at a ton of stuff. We've done so many things wrong. But we've also kept it going. We've passed it down. You remember that we went through Jude, the faith once delivered to the saints. This is a true story of who Jesus is. What he did. What he sets us free from, which is everything, the life that he gives, which is eternal life, and it's everything, and it is who we're... He's the one who tells us who we are. And like in Exodus, we say, we know who we are because we know whose we are. We can't just figure this stuff out. The wisdom of man leads you into some sort of cul-de-sac or something where you get stuck, and you can feel safe maybe, but you're not going to be whole. You're not going to be right. You're not going to be healed. You'll just feel safe. the very end of we shared some resources they're, they're still on our website. I'll take them down this week as we move into Christmas, but some, discuss, you know, some things to read along as we're going through mark and one of those is this video series with Craig Keener, the, the Bible scholar, and being interviewed about this, and the very end of the last video, he said something and I was like, that's exactly what this is because if this, is, this is book is Peter's memoirs, you know Peter the one who said i'll never." I'll never turn my back on you, God. Uh, Jesus. I'll, I'll 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 never do that. And she's like, "You're gonna deny me three times before by tomorrow," <laughs> and he does. And we know obviously that Peter comes back around. And read all through Acts. If you're like, "What do we read next?" Just go read Acts. It's great, you know. And uh, we're still doing that. And so he comes back around. But this is his story about Jesus. Here's what he saw. This is what he did. You know. And they asked, Craig, you know, Craig, Dr. Keener, they are like, what do, how would you summarize? Like, what's your end thought on this? And he said that if I was thinking about how I would sum this up, that what Peter might be thinking. And it's kind of what I might be thinking, too. He's like, he said this. I failed him so much, but he was so faithful. And I met him, and I have his story to tell. I'm going to read that again. It's like, I failed him so much, but he was so faithful. And I met him. And I have his story to tell. That's it. It doesn't always happen instantly. I mean, think about what Peter experienced. And yet... He's like, I know, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. He's like, this has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And he's like, and as the Messiah need to go and die on the cross for this. He's like, hey, you know, less of that stuff. Then like, you know, go back to the, you know, he's like, get behind me, Satan. You're like, whoa, what? You know, and then like we're doing, you know, I see Jesus transfigured on this mountain and Moses and Elijah are standing there with him, which is strange and weird. And like, like this is heavenly. I hear the voice of God and we're like, Oh my gosh. And then Jesus is like, you know, one want to use the betray. He's like, I'll never betray you. And he's like, you can't betray me three times by tomorrow, you know? And he does, but he comes back because he had his story to tell. And you do too. And it's not all great in the sense of we have failed. I have failed him so much but he is so faithful. It's okay, we can admit that we've failed. I feel like so much of our Christian culture is about pretending like, well, I don't do any of those things that I do all the time. Like Peter, I'll never deny, I don't even know if he believed it in that moment. He probably did, but you know, there's a lot of this like, well, I mean, I know some people really struggle with blah, 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 but I've never, you know, <laughs> and this kind of thing. And we act, but we don't act like that around normal people. Why don't we be normal here? We've all failed him. If you hadn't failed him, you wouldn't need to be here. Okay? Like, it's it's bad if there's more honesty in bars than there is in church. Or as John and I have talked about, like, in meetings, like honest meetings, like AA meetings, and people are honest. And they're like, why are they honest there? (laughs) He's like, well, I think it's because everybody that's there is like, I'm obviously here because I need help with something. We're the same way, but we try to pretend like, oh, you know, I'm good. All the, I don't think these other sinners or something. I don't you know. They're like, We're all sinners. That's the whole point. So we could start being honest, and if we start being honest, we might actually get somewhere. He is, I have failed him so much. I have failed him so much, but he has been faithful, and I've met him, and I have his story to tell. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that we would realize that we have met you and those that haven't, we would. Then we surrender to you and your rightness. And we know that there's been so much work that's gone into preserving your word. And it's not wasteful work, it's good work. And we're thankful for it. We're thankful for the people who spent hours alone in rooms looking over musty books to find things so that they could be sure about spelling of words that we don't even care about. And we thank thank you for people who gave their lives for putting your word into languages we can read. And we thank you that you've preserved your word for our sake. And Father, I pray that we would be the kind of disciples that tell your story. We don't have to tell it like everybody else, but we tell it in the honest truth of our experience with you and... That you would go with us as you promised that your signs would be following us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need time in prayer, um, there's, the altar's open. This is, you can come kneel here and pray if you want. If you need prayer, with people, we have our prayer team in the back. They'll pray with you. And uh, Joanna's going to lead us in a song, and then we'll close.